Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. I think I put the stand in the right spot. I don't know. There's, there's tape down here. Okay. Anyway, it's good to see you this morning. My name is Nathan. I'm on the teaching team here at Journey Church, and uh, we're glad to, to have you here with us. As Brent already mentioned, uh, we are going to be in Proverbs today, as JR read for us. We're going to be in Proverbs chapter 3, so if you have a Bible, you may want to go ahead and turn there. If not, we will have the words on the screen. Uh, we find ourselves in week three of a nine-week summer series that we're calling Pitfalls where we're looking at the first nine chapters of Proverbs as Solomon teaches his son about the wise path of life and how to differentiate that path from the path of folly. And I just want to ask a question. This is a place you can be honest. Um, how many of you, when you found out we were doing nine weeks on wisdom and Proverbs, were just stoked? It's about what I expected. There would be a few. I, in the teaching team meeting, when this was first presented, I laughed. I was like, oh my gosh, nine weeks in Proverbs. Not because it's funny. Uh, obviously, it's not because it's funny. The topic itself is not funny. Proverbs, is, if you read it for long, it's got some funny things in it, actually. But it's not all that funny. It's, I laughed because Proverbs, to me, has always been a tough cookie to crack. Like, it's, it's just been odd. It's been hard for me to, to look at it and, and to glean a lot from it. And I, my guess is that others in here feel that way. Like, okay, a week or two on Proverbs, great. Nine weeks on Proverbs. I think many of us inside the church and outside the church, we really kind of take three approaches to wisdom. Three approaches that are pretty common to wisdom. And the first one is just like, I don't need it. Now you wouldn't say that because that would be obviously very unwise. But when it comes to God's wisdom, a lot of times I think we actually just believe it's not that valuable. Like it's not needed. It's, it's one of those things where it's like in real life, we don't ask God for wisdom. We don't really ask others for wisdom. We just kind of roll through life hoping that everything will turn out okay, hoping we don't fall in a pit. But at the end of the day, we're just going to kind of do our thing and feel like it'll all turn out all right. We maybe wouldn't articulate that, but that's how we live our life a lot of times. I don't really need God's wisdom. I've got this. The second approach would be more like, I don't know how, or I give up. Like we see its value, but we find it hard to actually implement the wisdom of God. We want to be wise, but the struggle is real. Because we've been in this series, I was, I've been reading a lot of days, not every day, but like the day of the month, so like it's, today's the 20, 25th that I would have read, read Proverbs 25. Well, last Sunday was the 18th. So I read Proverbs 18 and, and I was telling my family before we even came up here, I was like, man, this, this second verse in Proverbs 18 really hit me. Here's what it says. Fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions. Now, my family, I'm sure they're like, that's not you, Nathan, but my, all, most of my opinions are correct. So a lot of times... I enjoy that. So I was telling my family before we even came, I'm like, yeah, this verse was like, oh gosh, like instead of being rushing to understanding, I had a lot of my own opinions. Well, I wasn't even at journey more than five minutes when somebody asked me a question, not an opinion, just asked me a question about something that week. And I gave them my opinion, like all of it about how silly that thing was and how I would never do that. And I wouldn't, they didn't even ask me that. Like an hour after reading this text, I'm giving my opinion. 
wisdom can be harsh. It's not easy. So for a lot of us, it's like, I just give up. Like, it's just hard. And then for others of us, we maybe feel like we just don't really care. We don't want to fall in a pit. But wisdom is just kind of like, ugh, it's just not that desirable. But clearly, Solomon is calling his son to desire wisdom. So this is a flawed approach as well. All three of those approaches, I don't need it, I don't know how, so I'll give up, I don't really care. They're all bad approaches, but this is how most of us, and sometimes all three of them at different points in our life, approach wisdom. Why is that? I think for one reason, it's because wisdom is hard. Wisdom takes pursuit. Wisdom takes perseverance. And as Kevin said in week one, knowledge is the lowest level of understanding. Wisdom is the application of that knowledge or the application of truth to practical life. Like for example, we all know, at least if you should know, it's true that crumble cookies taste amazing and they're probably not very good for us. Like that's easy to say, yeah, I I agree, that's true. But not eating a crumble cookie, or if you're more of a cake person like my seven-year-old, not eating, you know, like a nothing but cake, if it's sitting in front of you, is a lot harder than just acknowledging that it might not be good for you. Like we know it's true that exercise is good for longevity, for quality of life. That's easy to say, but it's a lot harder to actually exercise. We know it's true to continue dating our spouse and that that would lead to a happier and healthy marriage, a marriage that's nourishing and flourishing, that's easy to say, but actually getting the babysitter, budgeting in the budget for the date and making it happen, that is a lot harder. We know it's true that the habits of the Christian life, like scripture intake and prayer and meditation and fasting, that those will all lead to a growing in Christ likeness in our life. We can say easy, yeah, I agree with that. But like actually setting up those disciplines in your life and those habits, it's a lot harder. We understand that knowing something and practicing something are not the same thing. And this is where create, this is what creates pitfalls in our lives. As Daniel defined last week, a pitfall is a hidden or unexpected danger or difficulty. A hidden or unexpected danger or difficulty. So most of us identify with that. It's hidden, it's unexpected. We stumble, we fall into a pit. We mess up our lives and we're shocked, right? Well, that was unexpected. Didn't see that one coming. But it's like, really? Did you really not? I mean, in hindsight, is it really that hard to see how we get ourselves into the messes of our lives? Not, not usually, Sure, there are some times where access to knowledge would help avoid pitfalls. Like pitfalls can happen from ignorance, they can. But for many of us, it's not a lack of knowledge, but it's a lack of wisdom of practicing what we know to be true. And what this reveals, I'm afraid, is not just a lack of practice, it's a lack of desire. A lack of desire for wisdom. We have tricked ourselves into thinking that because we believe something is true, then we're wise. But in reality, our actual beliefs are exposed by what we practice and what we desire. And the problem is we often believe non-truths will lead to life. 
And then we practice those false beliefs and wind up in the bottom of a pit. So how can we actually believe the truth? As Brenda just prayed, how, how can we believe what's true? How can we believe God's wisdom is right? How can we shift our desire into actually wanting his wisdom? Choosing the harder but more fruitful way of life. Because our beliefs and our desires, they're the main barrier between us and actually practicing wisdom. It's not the knowledge, it's the belief and the desire, I think, that separates us. Tim Keller, in his book, God's Wisdom for Navigating Life, in his introduction, this is what he says about Proverbs, I love it. He says this, one of the main messages of Proverbs is you've never really thought enough about anything. Isn't that true? You've never really thought enough about anything. And it's these moments when we realize like we haven't thought enough about it that we've fallen in a pit and you look at the path you chose and you're like, well, duh, I should have known better. Maybe, maybe you should have thought better about your beliefs, your desires. Maybe you should have thought longer about the paths and decisions you're taking. So let's put our thinking caps on today as we look at Proverbs 3 and ask the Spirit of God to grant us deeper desires for wisdom. As we consider the beauty of wisdom, as, as the proverb would say today in Proverbs 3, and pre predominantly we're going to be looking at 13 through 35. So if you have a Bible, we're going to mostly be in that section of Proverbs 3. And as we do that, I want us to look at four aspects of what I'm calling the way of wisdom. I want us to see, and they're all going to start with W, that's going to drive some of you nuts, and some of you are going to be like, thank you, sorry. Wisdom's worth, we're going to see wisdom's wonder, we're going to see wisdom's works, and then I want us to think about wisdom's words. Wisdom's worth, wonder, works, and words. So first, what do I mean by wisdom's worth? Well, notice that the worth that Solomon attaches to wisdom here in verse 13. Here's what he says, 13, or excuse me, verse three, or chapter three, verse 13. Here's what he says. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, who finds it like a hidden treasure. We're to seek wisdom. Now, why would we seek wisdom? Especially when it's hard, like the, the culture we live in, it's like, if it's hard, just don't do it. Why would we seek wisdom when it's hard? Because it's valuable. Starting at verse 14 through verse 18, we're not gonna read that, but if you have a Bible, you can see it. But here's just some of the things that Solomon begins to personify wisdom as lady wisdom, as a, as a woman, both Daniel and Kevin have talked about how a female is both de depicted in Proverbs as a something to, to behold and to seek after lady wisdom and also to avoid like an adulteress. In this section, he's referring to wisdom as lady wisdom. And look at the value that he attributes to lady wisdom. Verse 14, she's more profitable than silver and gold. Verse 15, she's more precious than jewels. Verse 16, she has long life with her, riches and honor in verse 16. Verse 17, her ways are pleasant, her paths are peace. Verse 18, wisdom, a tree of life and of blessing. She has immense value 
But the line that stood out most to me is actually at the end of verse 15. This is what Proverbs 13, 15, the end says, nothing you desire can compare with her, with wisdom. Nothing you desire can compare with her. And that, I think, is where the challenge is. How can you actually know that? How can you actually know that nothing of all the things that you and I desire, how can we actually know that nothing else that we desire compares with wisdom? You have to think about it. You have to believe it. And you have to practice it by faith. Remember Tim Keller, you've never thought enough about anything. Our desires are tied to our beliefs, deep beliefs. Not what you say you believe, but the beliefs in your gut. This is where desire comes from and beliefs that are held deep in our hearts create desire within us. And sometimes those beliefs are based on experience. I believe that I would be really happy living by the ocean. Like literally seeing palm trees makes my heart sing. It's weird. It's probably unhealthy. Like my son gave me a palm tree for Father's Day or birthday last week. It's just, I'm, I love to hear the ocean. I go to bed with it beside me. Unfortunately, only on my phone. But I love the fresh fish, the, the salt, the salty sea, the, the, the sun on my skin. I love it all. And I believe I would love to live there. That's a desire if you couldn't already tell. But it's based on a belief. It's based on an experience. And some of us have those. But we also have desires and beliefs that are not really based on experience. They're based on things that we think are true. They're based on false beliefs. Garth Brooks made a hit song called Unanswered Prayers about desires that he asked God because in the moment he believed he really wanted them only to change his mind with more perspective. And we all do this. We do this all the time. We, we believe that promotion at work, man, if I could just get that promotion, or if I could just get that job, will make us happy. If I get that nicer car, it would make me more satisfied. If I could have the bigger house where the kids aren't all on top of each other, that would be better. Or that new job or new relationship or new city. I just want to move. I just want to get out of here. If I can get to a new city, a bigger city, if I can get out to the country, get away from people, I'll be happier. And they're not bad things in and of themselves, but when we attach beliefs to these things, that that is all that will actually satisfy us, that we need them to be happy and content, we begin to believe things that aren't actually true about the world. But despite the fact that those are false beliefs, they nevertheless do give birth to desires in our hearts. And here comes Solomon saying that all those desires, that nothing can compare with wisdom. Read the Song of Solomon, not with your kids, but read the Song of Solomon. Brother's got some intense desire. I mean, he does. But none of them compares to having wisdom. Interesting. So we have to think about our desires. We have to think about what value we attach to wisdom and why it's so far down the line for us. I mean, let's do an experiment. If somebody offered you or if somebody offered me something that was more profitable than gold, more precious than jewels, with long life and riches in tow, roads of pleasantness and peace for me, wouldn't you, wouldn't I be all in for all of that? 
We'd be like, sign me up. I'll take it, Solomon. What's the magic prize? And he's like, wisdom. And we hear that loser sound from the price is right. Like, it's like, wisdom? That, that's what that was about? Why don't we treasure wisdom? Why is it so hard to actually desire it in our life? Well, I believe it's because of what I call the wonder of wisdom. After laying out the value of wisdom in verses 14 through 18, Solomon in verse 19 says this, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding he established the heavens. Wisdom was around at the beginning. The Lord used wisdom in creation. In fact, one commentator says it like this, God has built the principles of wisdom into the structure of the world itself. Wisdom is the ordering principle by which everything functions and does not devolve into chaos. Simply put, wisdom is woven into the fabric of creation for the good of creation. Which explains why, apart from God's intervention, we struggle to desire it. Because you see, while everything we see from the foundations of the earth to the heavens above was made with wisdom woven in, people have rejected their maker and his wise ways from the very beginning. In the story of scripture, the original deception that prompted the fall of mankind and the unraveling of God's good world was a deception over beliefs. In God's good design, he allowed Adam to eat of any tree in the, in the garden except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Interesting. And while scholars debate what this tree of the knowledge of good and evil signified, it's likely that at least in some part, it was, a, it was that apart from Adam and Eve eating of this tree, they would not have experienced morality. They would have just known good. They were made in God's good image. And God wanted them to trust his way of life instead of experiencing morality, good and evil, on their own. But it was the knowledge and experience of good and evil that the serpent wanted Adam and Eve to, to engage in. And so this is where the beginning of our foolishness and rebellious nature towards our maker began. And notice that the, the way the serpent gets them to commit this act of treason against God, their creator, was by challenging their beliefs. Surely you won't die. He just is afraid you're gonna be like him. Challenging their beliefs. He knew that if he could do that, if he could get them to buy the story, that he could get them to believe something different from God's wisdom and way of life and he could affect their desire. So the serpent tells them the story about a false belief that God's holding out on them and they believe his story instead of God's truth. They choose their own path. And as a result, Adam and Eve and all of us have felt the wounds of the unwise path of choosing our own way. We're all wounded by it. Therefore, since the fall began with not trusting God and choosing our own path, we have been wounded by our lack of trust in God. 
We continue to look for water in the desert of our own dry and deadly paths. And that's why wisdom and the path to healing of these wounds of unwise living begins with a reinitiation of a fear of God, of a trust in God, trusting him and his ways since he is the author of life and of wisdom. We've been wounded by unwise living and wound up in unwise ways and we need to be unwound by the wonder of trusting God's way and his goodness and healing. That's why Proverbs 3, 8, at the beginning of this chapter says that trusting the Lord will be healing and nourishment to our bodies. That literally living in God's wise path leads to healing to our bodies and our minds. The human heart knows there is a God, but in our fallen state, we naturally rebel against him. We push back against his wisdom and this ultimately affects our beliefs about God, our beliefs about what really is a path to life and to joy. And these beliefs ultimately end up affecting our desires. Yet we know deep down that our way doesn't really lead to flourishing. We see it, we know it, we experience it. We, <coughs> we sense the foolishness that lands us in pitfalls. We know that we fall into it on our own doing. Like Jimmy Buffett famously said, some people may say there's someone else to blame, but I know it's my own fault. We do. This pit I'm in, it's my fault. We know that. We've rebelled against wisdom and the path of life to choose a different path. And we've rejected the wonder of God's wisdom, but in his mercy, despite our rebellion, God initiates relationship with you and I, his wayward creation, and he gives us wisdom to point us back to himself, back to the path of life. And one way he does this is by allowing us to fall into pitfalls in our own foolishness so that we can see that his ways are leading to life and that God's wisdom is always working in the world and there's three ways, three ways I want to show quickly, I think, through this text that wisdom is working in the world. The first one starts in verse 21. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. And they will be life for your soul and an adornment for your neck. Notice Solomon assumes that if we don't lose sight of wisdom, we will find life. Like you keep wisdom and discretion in sight, you will find life. That assumption flows from the wonder of wisdom. He's basically saying like wisdom is, when you seek God's wisdom, you're naturally gonna find life because he's the maker of life. Wisdom's been around since the beginning, right? It's founded on wisdom. And so if we seek it, we'll find it in our life. So number one, wisdom is at work in the world just already from the beginning. But number two, we'll see that wisdom is how life works well, Look at verse 23 through 26. It's how we experience wisdom in real time or life in real time is through wisdom. Verse 23, then you will walk on your way securely <coughs> and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror of the ruin of the wicked when it comes for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. The works of wisdom in your life, the way wisdom plays itself out in your life, walking securely, no fear 
deep rest. I'm in. Why can we experience these things? Because of the author of wisdom. It's not wisdom that gives us confidence. It's the Lord. That's what he says. Yahweh, the Lord. A life of wisdom finds its confidence not in wisdom itself, but in the author of it, the Lord. And so if wisdom is at work in the world naturally, and if wisdom is how life is lived well, then there must be ways that we are to be at work in wisdom. Because wisdom is the way we are to be at work in the world as human beings, as image bearers of God. So picking back up in 27, he says, do not withhold good from those whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I'll give it when you already have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason. When he's done you no harm, do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. While this section is predominantly looking at it from a negative point of view, like negative commands, don't do this, don't do that. It's commanding us what to avoid. If you look at the inverse of those, it lays out ways we are to engage in the world. We're to do good to others. We're to love our neighbor. We're to tell the truth. We're to be a peacemaker and not envy the violent. This is the way that wisdom works itself out in our lives. Wisdom is at work, both as we experience life and as we live a wise life. And deep down, we all want this type of life. We want sweet sleep and peace. So how do we cultivate a desire for that? We need to think more on wisdom's words and let them marinate in our soul. Yet, before we do that, I want you to see there's, a, there's some other words that are attached to foolish living. Just look at verses 32 through 35 if you have a Bible. For example, verse 32 in the ESV says, for the devious person is an abomination to the Lord. Folly's words, abomination. Folly's words in 33 the Lord's curse. Folly's words in 34, scorned or mocked. 35, disgrace or shame. Folly has some words here too. And when you consider the three approaches from the beginning, that we don't need it, we don't know how, so we give up, or we don't really care, we are living in folly in those three approaches to wisdom. And you see, we make decisions every day. All day, every day, we're making decisions. We can't help but make decisions. And when we do, we make them on our actual beliefs. What we actually believe and what we actually think will lead us to joy and desires. So if you and I have an approach to God's way of wisdom as I don't need it, I give up, or I don't care, we're choosing to do life our way. And our culture is glad to just say, keep on doing that. Keep on doing life your way. We're, we're for you. Not far from my house is a billboard that says, enjoy your pride. That, brothers and sisters, is a belief. It's a belief. It's a belief about how you will find joy. And it's giving you worldly 
wisdom. And before you're like, tell them, read the scriptures. God don't like any kind of pride. He opposes the proud. Enjoy your pride. Not just that, a dominant theme in our culture is be you, be true to yourself. God forbid the worst thing you ever do is not give in to your desires. That's the cultural narrative. But look at Proverbs 14 too. There's a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. Ain't that cheery? Sheesh. I mean, good grief. Yeah, that sounds good. I like that. That's a good idea. That's great. Go for it. It will lead to your demise, but go for it. This is the world in which we live. Our belief apart from God's ways leads to death or in the words of folly in Proverbs 3, it's an abomination. It's the Lord's curse. Mock, shame. When we approach God's wisdom with three bad approaches, we are inviting these words to be our reality. But thank God, wisdom has some words too. They're not the only words there. Wisdom's words are the Lord's confidence in verse 32. His blessing in verse 33. His favor in verse 34. The Lord's honor is on those who pursue wisdom. The way of wisdom lead to these words. But there are two words as we finish in Proverbs 3 that are, in my view, game changers for all of us because they're the first two words of wisdom. And these two words of wisdom get to the heart of wisdom. You might be like, the heart of wisdom? I thought you were talking about the mind. Well, as we all know, wisdom is more than head knowledge. We have to learn it and think about it, but it's how we actually put that head knowledge into practice that affects our head and our heart and our hands, the way we live our life. So let's look at the heart of wisdom beginning in verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Now, I'm going to stop for a second here because the, we have to do a little bit of work on the word heart. The Hebrew word heart is the word lave, which actually in our thinking, we typically think about heart simply as desire, but really for the Hebrew mindset, it was the inner man, the inner person. It was the mind and the heart and the desire, and the will, and the understanding, all of it, mind, body, soul, all of it, mind and soul, especially in Jewish thought, was not separated out. The heart was the mind and desire and the soul all bound up. So Solomon is addressing that he wants his son to keep his commandments in his heart, in his inner person, where his will and understanding and desire and mind, all of it is. Keep me keep it there. That's why he, he juxtaposes forgetting his teaching to actually burying it deep in all that he is, mind, body, and soul. Okay, so we can carry on. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Verse three, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you, or some translations might say leave you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. These are the first two words of wisdom. And notice he ties them to his teaching. Verse one, he says, keep my teaching in your heart. And then what does he say to put in his heart? 
steadfast love and faithfulness, the two words of wisdom. Now, I can count like you can count. You're like, that's three words. But not in the original language. Steadfast love is one Hebrew word, chesed. Or sometimes I say hesed, however you say it. And hesed or chesed is a very complex idea. In fact, the Bible Project, this is how they say, they say that it combines three, three different ideas really into one. The idea of love, generosity, and enduring commitment. Love, generosity, and enduring commitment are all wrapped into one word, chesed. And so here's where you have the word steadfast love, or some translations will say faithful love or unfailing love or loving kindness. We just can't figure out how to actually articulate it in one word, steadfast love. And this word, chesed, is used 251 times in the Old Testament. Most of the time, it's talking about the way that God relates to his covenant people. And sometimes it's talking about the way people relate to each other. Like Ruth is said to have shown chesed or steadfast love to her mother-in-law, Naomi. David is said to have shown chesed to his friend, Jonathan's crippled son, Mephibosheth. I said it right the first time. What's interesting though, is that most translations, when it's translating chesed between two people, don't translate it steadfast love. They translate it kindness. Why is that? Because really, when God is the one showing chesed, and the Old Testament is an extravagant display of commitment, of love, and of generosity. This is how the Hebrews understood his character. He was chesed. You see, when God disclosed who he was to Moses in Exodus 34, this is what God says about himself. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The same two words, steadfast love and faithfulness that we are to write on our hearts. God is abounding in them. They're the heart of his character. And Solomon wants his son to write steadfast love and faithfulness on his heart. How on earth could that be possible? I mean, if Ruth's commitment to Naomi, which is inspiring, is merely kindness, and if David's commitment to Jonathan's family shown to Mephibosheth is merely kindness, how on earth can Solomon's son, how can we keep steadfast love in our hearts? We know our hearts. We know how we struggle to live wisely. We know how we struggle to even desire to live wisely, much less struggle to be generous, to give loyal love and enduring commitment to God and to other people. We have good moments, sure. We have Instagrammable chesed where we can be like, look what I did. But, but to say it was written on our hearts, there's no way in our strength at least that we could say that. But notice what Proverbs 16, 6 says about steadfast love and faithfulness and what it can do. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. 
You see, steadfast love and faithfulness covers iniquity. What's iniquity? Well, iniquity is, if you look it up in a Bible dictionary, perversity, depravity, guilt, sin. It's foolishness on our own part. It's choosing our own way. It's our waywardness, our rebellion. Iniquity is our rejection of the wonder and worship of God that he's not just due, but that will actually make us happy. We reject his wisdom and his way of living for our own. And yet steadfast love and faithfulness can somehow atone for that iniquity. Somehow it can make it right so that we can actually fear the Lord again and turn away from evil. Not merely foolish living, turn away from evil. How can steadfast love and faithfulness ever do that in us? Because in the Old Testament, God was the only one who perfectly showed chesed, but then came a man who embodied it. Jesus of Nazareth, Messiah, the eternal son of God, came to embody for us and to us steadfast love and faithfulness. It was written all over his heart. He was perfectly generous. John says he loved his people to the very end. And he's faithful to his father in every way. And instead of lording his perfection over us, he took our iniquity upon himself. Our lack of hesitation towards God and others, he took on the cross into the grave and buried it there forever. And now, by just trusting in Jesus, we can have our own iniquity atoned for by steadfast love and faithfulness forever. And not merely just atoned for, not merely just covered. God the Father, the scriptures say, gives us a new heart that he writes steadfast love and faithfulness on. And he gives us God the Holy Spirit to actually empower us and to give us the desire to walk in wisdom and that leads to life and forevermore. You see, steadfast love and faithfulness, these are the words of wisdom, the first two words, the most important words, and God wants to write it on your heart. Psalm 33, 18 says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. When you and I hope, place all of our hope, all of our desire, all of our belief on the steadfast love shown to us in Jesus, it covers our sin and our fear of the Lord and our satisfaction and trust in him and his love it's gonna to lead to breakthroughs in your life and my life in regards to wisdom. Think about this. Let your mind and your heart dwell on this. Because when you think enough about God's steadfast love and faithfulness shown to you in Jesus, it cannot help but transform you from the inside out. And once you have set your hope in the words of wisdom, Jesus' steadfast love and faithfulness towards you, it's then that you can make sense of Solomon's command in five and six. Now trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. 
in all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. There is a steadfast love and faithfulness available to you through faith in Jesus that will actually transform your heart. It will transform your desires and it will transform those crooked paths that you walk into straight paths that lead to life. Brothers and sisters, think, believe, dwell on the chesed of Jesus until your heart becomes a flame with his love and his ways of wisdom and watch your desire for him and his ways grow all the more. As we close in a call to action this morning, wherever you are in the room in regards to wisdom, there's really kind of, I think, two um, two people here. You're either a disciple of Jesus, you're following Jesus, or you're not a disciple of Jesus when it comes down to it. And if you're not a disciple of Jesus, just, just keep in mind that in the, in the way that you're living life, it's a way that seems right to you. And it's gonna end in death. Not just physical death, spiritual death, emotional death, and not just at the end, but you're already experiencing it probably if you're honest. I mean, if you're here today and you're not a disciple, if you're watching online and you're not a disciple of Jesus, think about it. Are you really getting all that you were promised out of this path that you're on? Is it living up to the bill of goods it sold you? Are you having sweet sleep of peace? deep rest, no fear. The way in, the way of wisdom is not for you to just figure it out better, but to submit to the steadfast love and faithfulness of Jesus Christ on your behalf, to turn from your path, to take his path and to follow him by grace through faith. If you're here as a disciple of Jesus, which I know most of us are. I just want you to take a moment just to kind of get whatever posture you need for your heart to be attuned to the Lord. We're gonna do some fun things beside the keys. We're gonna have some silence. We all love silence, right? To let the Spirit speak to us. So first, I just want you to take a moment and ask the Holy Spirit of God to awaken you to his steadfast love in your heart. you to that as you hear him say that he loves you, that you are in Jesus, you are accepted, you are loved, that you are welcomed into his family. 
The second thing I want you to think about is think about your desires. Now, we are made in the image of God. Not all desires are bad desires. So think about your desires and ask the Spirit to reveal those desires and beliefs that are out of step with God's way of wisdom. He may bring some things to mind. Allow the Spirit to speak to you and then ask Him to reshape those desires by His His love. Father, we are your people, the sheep of your pasture. You are the good shepherd. We thank you that you have showed us steadfast love and faithfulness. We thank you that that as hard as wisdom is, if we can just get down to the basic facts that it is steadfast love and faithfulness to you, to our neighbor, to others, that we can walk in faithfulness to that by the power of your spirit. Father, today I pray if there's someone here or watching that is not a disciple of Jesus, they have not taken up the mantle to follow him, to be with him, to become like him, to do the things that he did. Uh, that's what we are to call, called to be as your people. I pray that right now in this moment that your spirit would open their eyes to the amount of life that, the, that you have for them, the path of life. It's not an easy road, but it is a road that is satisfying and leads to life. And so I pray that you would open their eyes now for those of us that are here that are disciples of you that just don't have the desire all the time to just want to walk in wisdom. We just kind of want to do things our way until we find ourselves in a pit which you Awaken us to the beauty of your ways. Would you refresh us that we are not under shame, we are not scorned, we are not under your curse because Jesus took the curse for us as your people. Would you let us to walk in the fullness of life? We love you, Jesus. It is for your name that we gather and that we sing and that we pray and that we open your word that you would transform us into your image one degree at a time for eternity. In Jesus' name I pray.